Hey, it's Dan Harmon from Harmontown. I want to tell you about an exciting new podcast coming to Feral Audio called Launch Left. Rain, Phoenix, and Moon Zappa are going to interview extraordinary minds, mavericks, and pioneers in their fields. This season, Launch Left is going to celebrate nonconformists like Michael Stipe, Shepard Ferry, Spike Jones, Mario Batali, and many others. And those guests are also going to spotlight their favorite left-of-center emerging artists. So listen and subscribe now at feralaudio.com slash left, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do it however you want, man. That's the nonconformist part. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D. LD.com right now and use a promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you like my theme music there, that is Les Blanks. Check out their music at lesblanks.com or the Apple Music Store type of stuff. Um, today, I'm very excited to have this guest, and I'm uh, is Neil Steinberg. He's a author, a journalist, and a columnist from Chicago. I'm a huge fan. I read his first, uh, not his first book, but I read Drunkard, which was a book of his uh, from 2008. I read it when it came out, and I. I loved it, and then uh, I didn't. I then I realized he's a journalist for the Sun Times, and um, and he's written a series of books that I've heard about and read and loved. Like he's just this guy who's always coming in and out of my life uh, conversationally. Um, and his new story is out of the wreck, or the, his new book, which is came out in 2016. Out of the wreck, I rise: a literary companion to recovery. And uh, it's a very it's it's a very interesting book. Neil tells you about it, so you don't need to hear, hear me babble about it. I I need to apologize to Mr. Steinberg because we recorded this a long time ago, and it was uh, then I had some complications and I was having troubles getting the podcast going again, and uh, and then I kind of misplaced a file and then I'm also a dad a new dad so I'm not I haven't been at the top of my game lately uh, and I feel uh, bad because it took a while to get this out and it was supposed to be out a long time ago Uh, I am excited that it's coming out and that I I I found the file I I lost some things on my computer so um, I'm not technically savvy that's why I have feral audio to help me with this stuff um but uh, please check out Mr. Steinberg's work. He's an incredible writer and uh, a fascinating mind. And I think you'll really dig this chat. Um, it was 
I th- it was recorded around election time. I can't recall if it was before or after, but so if there seems to be some slight uh, older references to the, what's going on in the media and Trump, uh, you'll understand. Um, and then oh, now I'm trying to remember if I asked him some of these questions post facto. Because a lot of times the conversations with this continue after I uh, hit the pause button on my recorder. So, uh, and uh, I could record those, but that would be kind of scumbaggy, wouldn't it? To just record without... <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so I hope Mr. Steinberg is uh, fine with that this took forever to fucking come out. Um, I be- you should You should check out all of his books. Um, they're all fantastic. Uh and I'm not just saying that. I, my wife gave me a, a book of his a, a, a couple Christmases ago, uh, not knowing that I was a fan of his. Uh, you were never in Chicago is the title of it, and uh, it. And I'm a huge Chicago file. So, and she didn't know I was a fan of his. I was very excited. And that's a great book. If you love Chicago and you're from Chicago, or even if you're not, it's a really fantastic book. Um, so anyway, I'm going to stop babbling about how great Neil Steinberg is and just let you listen to his greatness. Here we go. Yes. Was it was asking your wife uh, to marry you? Was that a nerve wracking moment? Um, uh, it was so nerve-wracking that I took it back the first time. I proposed <laughs> to her, and we told our parents, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, I popped up and said, I can't do this. <laughs> and so that's how, yes, I guess the, the answer is yes. Um, quite nerve-wracking. Um, I, I, we dated for seven years, and I, I just, you know, I thought I was going to marry Natasha, Natasha Kinski on a yacht. Okay, so I thought like I had this fabulous life plan. If you remember who she was, yes, you know the snake. Um, and I just the idea that I was going to like live in the quotidian world and marry an actual person with a family, and and you know it just it, it was it was sort of I had trouble adjusting to it. Even though she was the fabulous best woman I ever met or ever ever going to meet, where people just rolled their eyes, just wondering what she was doing with me, you know, never mind marrying me. All right, so it's just this this complete, like, best person in the world. We've been together for 30 years, and I just was like, mm, really? You know, and that's how guys are, right? They they they, uh, they they have this wonderful thing at their feet, and they're kind of looking over it to see who else is there. Um, yeah, I, but, but, I, I was that same way for many years. Why do you th- think we are that way? I mean, maybe it's genetics. Maybe we're just looking to, to, to spread it around, and then we want another cave girl so that, you know, maybe those those people will be eaten by a bear. Um, I, you know, I mean, a lot of the stuff we, 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 you know, have this little veneer of Keats and everything over it is it's probably something that's 50,000 years old that we're just rationalizing, right? Um, so, so uh, I mean, that's what my guess, uh, you know, or we're just slime. I, you know, I don't want to put on airs. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I like uh, there was a period where I was auditioning for Saturday Night Live, and I was the I kind of I was with somebody, and I was like, "Oh well, this is going to change my game." <laughs> it's like, and it was really scumbaggy of me. 
Yeah, it, 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 uh, I, I, you know, when I saw you in L.A., my first job was in L.A. I had three of the most unhappy months of my life there. So I have like this, this deep sympathy for anyone who, who goes into comedy, who goes into those. I did one stand-up once at the firehouse in Evanston, and that was it. I, I can't do this anymore. I can never do this again. Because it just was too... You know, I figured if I would have pressed, like, like gotten over that hump that, that people who actually, you know, it's their dream to do it, that I could have done it. Um, but uh, I just, you know, you have to be willing to fail. And I was already failing as a columnist. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I look at, I, I had a column in junior high school, a junior high school paper, I had a column in high school, I had a column in college, right? But the idea that I was a columnist, it never crossed my mind. It was like a day job, right? It was like something I was doing until I broke through as a, as a novelist and a genius and a humor writer and like whatever, you know, that sort of free-floating thing that you think that famous people have where they kind of do everything and they're just brilliant. Um, and that never happened. And then about 10 years, maybe 15 years ago, I looked at them like, oh, this is my life. I do this. I write for a newspaper and it's actually like this really cool job because I don't have to show up and I can do it wherever I want. Take whatever subject I like and, and, and people just write to me what a genius I am and, and that's okay. I can, I can, I can, I can like, well, like Mary Eadie. Uh, oh, all right. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> See, it's uh, funny. I all the time I think I'm like, ah, oh, man, I wish I would have become a com columnist. <laughs> so that's how it all. I, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, I don't know if you read the New Yorker, but they, they have a guy named Adam Gopnik who was like he was their man in France, right? And he's this fabulous writer. A French newspaper compared him to Voltaire, right? So he, he writes this book called Paris to the Moon, where he's uh, uh, he about his time in France and and. and Having his wife giving birth to a child in France. So they, when people write books, it's like a chance to meet them because they they want you know they're so desperate for publicity that they'll actually like talk to a guy in Chicago when they're there. And so I called up his publicist and I said, "Can I take him to lunch? Can I take him? Can I meet him?" So I pick him up at the Tremont Hotel, you know, some Oak Street hotel, and uh, we get in the cab, you know, to go to the Berghoff. You're familiar with Chicago, right? Where do you yeah, take someone from? I'm from Chicago never... originally. Okay, good, good. Um, so we're going to the Burghoff, and he looks at me and kind of narrows his eyes, and he goes, so, a newspaper columnist in Chicago, that's kind of the writer's dream, isn't it? And I said, eh, you know how it is, but you, the New Yorker's man in Paris, now that's the writer's dream. And he doesn't miss a beat, he goes, eh, you know how it is. <laughs> and we kind of became friends after that because we were like two you know, Jewish wordsmiths who kind of had our satchels of words, and we're sort of going around trying to sell them to people um we started right or have we should we should i should we do we start or is this just that we, we kind of just cold go into it is that uh i've been writing since i was a kid i never i feel like i even if nobody no, i meant for your for blog for for, for podcast purposes we, we, we're just going to talk like this right oh yeah 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 Okay, good. Okay, that works for me. I just wanted to check to see. I hate to do this for an hour, and then he's like, "I'm take my kids to breakfast afterwards," and, and then you go, "Okay, now we begin." You yeah. know, like as a newspaper, and sometimes I'm talking to someone, and I just something about them. I go, "You realize I'm putting this in the paper, right? That's that's why we're having this conversation. I don't want to <laughs> talk to you for an hour. In the end, I ask how to spell your name, and your eyes kind of goggle, and you go, "Wait a second, you're not going to print this, are you? You know, that's tell you, but just every once in a while, you know, you kind of." You, you, you don't know people that much, and you, and you kind of. So I didn't want you to kind of say, "Okay, now I'm turning the machine off." Um, yeah, I just ahead. we started talking about marriage, and it it seemed like an organic way. So I was like, "All right, here we go." Uh, I usually do explain before that it's like it's a conversation. I I do try to go 
to certain places, but if we we go where we go as well, and we, well, we should mention the book because that's you know at some point. Oh, uh, absolutely. I don't you know, uh, I mean, it, it does sort of overwhelm you. Um, and, and I mean, uh, this is my eighth book, so there is like kids. There's a, there's a learning process, right? Uh, you know, for the first kid, you, you're you're. I remember autoclaving the bottle nipples, right? Kind of boiling them and handling them with tongs and setting them down on paper towels to dry. By the second, you're like picking them off the floor and you rub them on your shoulder and you know stick it in. Um, so I mean, you know, I remember the first book, my, my mother calling me and saying. Uh, so uh, when are you going to send me uh, the book? I said, uh, here's a thought, Mom. You know, if your own mother doesn't buy the book, who's going to buy it? You pick the damn book, Mom. <laughs> um, and now I'm like, okay, Mom, I'll send you the book, whatever. You know, it's that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight with my mom for to sell one book. You know, so not not quite as panicked. Although there is sort of like this, it's like 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 some sort of 1910 comic character. You lose it. Uh, 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 yeah, the Homer Milk Toast kind of guy, Casper Milk Toast. You know, you keep doing the same thing over and over again, and you're like, "Oh right, no one is gonna care." I, I spent five years writing this, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Do Do you have a hesitance to of sharing your work with your parents in general? Um. I wrote a book about my father, so I, I mean, they, they're going to see it. I try not to think about them because, you know, a lot of people, people can't write in general, not because they can't put words together, although that's kind of a problem sometimes too or often, but they just, they don't want to say the like harsh things that, that make for good writing. So I actually try not to think about them too much. Um, you know, you don't want to think about, you don't want to write for one person. You don't want to water down your stuff so your mom doesn't get upset. You know, so I, I sometimes do an edgy column. I'm kind of like, Mom, you know, skip this one, will you? You know, this is the column where I'm beaten by a dominatrix. And it's, you know, you kind of... But on the other hand, um, you know, we mentioned Dan Savage at the top, and I, you know, I, I know you can bleep things out, so I shouldn't... Oh, you can swear all me. you want. It doesn't... Okay, because, you know, and, and, and I do... He's a, he's a wonderful writer. If you've never read his book, uh, uh, the, the Betrothal and the Kid, you know, a book about getting married and a book about his son, um, they're fabulous books. And if I do, you know, I do sometimes pause and think, can I write about this? And, and I, I say to myself, well, you know, if Dan Savage can write with humor and candor about being fucked up the ass, I bet you I can write this. <laughs> You know, and that's and 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 the things that you think are gonna um, are people gonna care about that you you never see the bullet that gets you. I, mean, I remember walking. There was a uh, my my sister-in-law, Cookie Gluck, is a costume designer. She designed Benny the Bull, and we were home at Thanksgiving having dinner, and you know, kind of typical around the turkey chat. What's up with you, Cookie? How, how's the office? How's you know, costume designing? She goes, Oh, I have a new uh, I have a new seamstress, Lilith. Uh, she's a professional dominatrix. You know, I'm a daily newspaper columnist, right? I thought, oh, there's a profession you just don't see in the paper much. I wonder if she would want to, like, be in the paper. Oh, sure, here are colors. And, of course, you know, here she did. And and what really got my attention was her dungeon was on Lake Street, like a block and a half from the Thompson Center. All right, so, you know, you two blocks, three blocks from right in the heart of the city is this, you know, full S&M dungeon. And so I, I arranged, you know, got some advance of $200 from the paper, and I arranged to be you know, beat by this woman. I, mean, I, just, I, I tried to talk to some of her clients. It wasn't the first, but, you know, when, when, when you're a customer for dominatrix, you're not a real, you know, it's hard to find someone to come on the record, so to speak, and, uh, and, and, and talk about that. I remember walking back and forth in front of this dungeon thinking, now, is this going to, like, break the fragile bond between me and the readers? You know, are they going to, am I going to be the guy who did this? And I thought, you know, I'm not really 
ashamed of this. I'm just interested. This is not my own you know, personal predilection. And uh, I'm just, you know, it's Wednesday afternoon, and, and I'm, you know, I'm being paid, and I'm, I'm finding out what this is all about. And, it, and the funny thing was is that you know, I, I tried, and you know, we did it as dramatic as we could. It was a front page of the commentary section with an enormous photo of this gal in her $300 steel corset holding a whip, holding a, like a cat o' nine tails in front of a, a wall full of whips. And, and, and the column started in, you know, whatever, in media rest, you know, where I'm nearly naked at her feet saying, you know, yes, mistress, what should I do? And I think that's three emails. <laughs> People are like, oh, um, but I knew new journalism was dying at that point because it was, you know, nothing is mysterious. You, you put in continuum dungeon and the website pop is gone now. They actually tore the building down put up some apartments. Um, but, uh, you know, in other words, so here I worried that this was going to end my career, and nobody cared. You Nobody cared. <laughs> and, and that's what I'm fighting. You, know, That's what all writers, and I think everyone fights. You know, when, when, I, when I'm talking to young writers, I say, you know, just, if, you know, I'm going to say this first off, because you're, you're going to tune out, because who wants to hear an old man talk anyways? Uh, but it, nobody cares about your writing. I mean, nobody cares what you have to say. Nobody's, nobody has to, to listen to it. And, and you have to make them care. You have, if you care about something enough to write about it, you have to then do it in such a way to draw them in. You know? And, and that's, that's on your shoulders. You can't bitch that people aren't paying attention to you. Then you failed. You know? And, that's, and that's, that's kind of a hard lesson, maybe, for you know, high school students, but it's true. Yeah. I'm curious how you broached the subject with your wife, I'm going to go, and and your kids who will at one point be, be, know that you did that. Like, is that, how, how do you approach that? Oh, you, you mean, you mean, you mean with uh, the, dom- the dominate? Yes. Oh, um, I, mean, I, I, I certainly asked her, and she, she at first said, you know, why do you have to do it? What does that be you? And I said, because it's funnier if it's me. You know, it's, it's, it's otherwise it's just sort of clinical. And, and, uh, you know, I, again, I, I try to run things by her if I think they're going to shock her, although sometimes I fail. And the story I always tell is she called me once in, in that kind of sucking air, sobbing that women do when they're, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and I said, you know, I thought someone had died. And I'm like, honey, what's wrong? And she goes, you know that junior high school principal you call an idiot in the paper today? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, don't you realize Ross has to go to school there in two years? <laughs> <laughs> I was <laughs> like, oh no, actually, it never crossed my mind. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's funny because I have to turn talk about the alcoholism thing because usually people are like, well, aren't you embarrassed? Don't you? And, you know, and, and of course the answer is, well, she certainly knew, you know. Um, and, and I say, well, you know, I wasn't embarrassed to be some notorious sponge reeling around town, you know, soaking up every drop of booze I could get my hands on. Why, why would I be embarrassed? I got better. You know, I did once did a full page column on martinis. It began with me sitting in uh, the place, uh, Miller's Pub, and the waitress comes over, and I order, you know, like, Bombay Sapphire Martini straight up with a twist and over move, and she writes it down, she says, Bombay Sapphire, straight up, uh, uh, twist and over move, and then her, kind of a realization comes over her face, and she goes, why, that's gin, that's pure gin, and the new graph, exactly. You know, so I'm writing these like celebrations of booze, and and that was okay, and it was okay, and I'm not anti booze. It's a wonderful thing, unless you're an alcoholic, and then you can't drink it. You know, um, and and uh, so, you know, give speeches, and I, mean, I had you know when 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 I went into rehab, you know, I went to rehab because you know I hit my wife out of jail and for a day, and uh, so I had to go to rehab to stay out of jail, and and it was a sort of compulsory thing. 
And when I, you know, I did my, I did a, a recovery memoir called Drunkard in 2008, I started writing it not because I was, you know, sort of this on-the-plantation reformed alcoholic, but I was in the middle of rehab, and I was trying to make it significant. You know, I'm a Dante fan, and, and Dante teaches you if you go to hell, you take notes, right? So when I started the book, I, I was, the, the working title was Booze Triumphant. And I, and I assumed I'd go back to drinking at the end because I wasn't going to give up drinking. That was crazy. You know, drinking was what I did. And uh, only about halfway through, they realized, oh, wait a second. This is a real problem. This isn't something my wife made up. This is something like the sickness that I, I've got to figure this out or I'm going to die. And we, which I, I mean, beforehand, I was, I was just as alcoholic. Yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I'm going drink, to drink and then I'm going to die. And that's what I do. That's the route in front of me. And, and anything else is just that's ridiculous. And only in rehab did I kind of go, oh, you know, I could actually, the way I explain it is, is uh, recovery is trading one thing for everything else. You've got this one, you, know, you take, it doesn't matter, you take pills, you take heroin, you take booze, whatever it is, you've got this one thing which forms your life and then you kind of, you know, exist around it. And when you go through recovery, you, you abandon that and you get everything else in life uh, much more enhanced. And addiction is so skewing your judgment that you have to decide, you, you don't really, that, that's a tough decision to make. Hmm, do I trade this one thing for everything else in life or, or do I just stick to the one thing? And that's, you know, to show you how skewed your judgment is, you, you, have, to, you have to wonder whether that's the right thing. And, and that's where this new book kind of comes in. Because when you, when you start in recovery, there's only AA. You know, you, part of your your rehab program is you have to go to AA like every night, and you hate it because you're being forced to. And if you've ever been to AA, it's like 12 guys in a basement. They all gather. They've got this very wheezy 1930s kind of you know, the 12 steps, and five of them talk about God. And it really rubbed me the wrong way because you know, A, I've never believed in God for a second in my life. And, I didn't understand why I had to start in order to be sober. And, and anything, you know, the other thing it gives you is the, the fellowship of your other of other alcoholics, and, and other people kind of creep me out. So here I am being hugged by these guys in flannel, and and, I, and, I, and and this is not to put it down. Okay, AA is a fabulous thing, and it helps lots of people, and it helped me. Um, the metaphor I, I give is it's like you're you're burned, and they're medevacking you to, to Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago, where the big burn unit is. You don't prop yourself up on one scorched elbow and go, "No, wait a second, I have this trouble with the Pope, and it's a Catholic hospital." And then you just go, right? You get the treatment, and then you go out, and you go. I mean, you know. So in other words, I, I was helped for a year or two to, to to kind of break this addiction by a, but I didn't want to keep going all the time. What I wanted to do was read which I love to do. And so instead of drinking all the time, I mean, I've always been a reader. I'm a writer. And so, but when I would read things, I would pull out stuff that helped me um, stay sober. And uh, do you want me to tell you how this book came to be? Because it, 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 it's a story that's too long to tell anywhere else. But since we have an hour, I can kind of tell you. Because, you know, books are, uh, at this stage in life, there's such work that, it, that it, it's almost like they keep happening by accident. Like my, I did my last book was a book about Chicago. You were never in Chicago. And I've read as that cocky book. It, it's great. Have, I love it. Oh, thank you, thank you. But, but you know, as cocky as I am, I was never going to say. And now I write my book about Chicago. Right? They, they asked me. They read something I wrote for Vermont, this, this London magazine, and they said, "Hey, would you do a book about for our series of you know, Voices of Chicago?" And the very first thought I had was, "But I live in Northbrook, and I grew up in Cleveland." And, and, and I know, you know, if you, that as an outsider, you just, you'll be viciously pilloried if you present yourself as a Chicagoan. So like, you know, PR 801, you, you go with your flaw. So it's, it's a book about outsiders like me who 
come to a city and try to dwell here. And how do we do it? We make connections and we get a job and then we help other people and then we become like we work our way into the fabric and that's what the story's about. And and I you know, I, I think it did as well as it did because you know, it, it's good for LA, it's good for any other place you go. It's about sort of insinuating yourself into the into the, what's what's going on. Um so for this book what happened was is all books come into the paper, and it's so heartbreaking to have what they call a book sale, like every three months, you know, where all the, the review copies are set out, and you pay two bucks to our scholarship fund, and you take whatever book you want. And most books you won't even touch. You won't even touch with the precedent of paying two bucks for them, okay, which is just so sad. But there was a book with a beautiful cover called Strange Red Cow. And I thought, what could that book be? What the book was is it was a look at history through classified advertising. This author, Sarah Bader, uh, is like a researcher for A and E and History Channel and things. And she had she was doing her research and she was looking through colonial papers and she said, you know, she tried to look at the classified ads. I mean, who does that, right? And and what she found were stories of runaway slaves and and couples trying to meet each other and it's sort of this little keyhole into history. So if I said, you know, what, what did people carry in their saddlebags in 1735? We'd go, how am I supposed to find that out? Or here, you know, lost saddlebag contents, you know, whatever, in this paper. So I read it, and I called her up, and I started to talk to her. And she was an editor at the Princeton Architectural Press. So she, you know, started to send me the books they published. And I had done a book I thought they could reprint with photos or all the details. We, we started to have this relationship on the phone. And what she does as a hobby is something called quotenik which are verified quotes on the web. Because if you want to check a quote, it can, it can be hard to do. You know, did Hemingway say the world's a fine place and worth fighting for, or the world's a fine place and worth the fighting for? Well, there's 100,000 versions of each, which is right. So uh, I'm, you know, sitting there reading the, the eight-volume Lobe Seneca, and I'd find this stuff about, you know, being strong and getting personal difficulties and what disease is and what drinking is and da da And I would, instead of reading my to my wife, who's, you know, sick of hearing um, I, I would go upstairs and I'd drop them to quote Nick. And then during one of our conversations, Sarah says, well, I see you're putting all these quotes about recovery uh, to quote Nick. And I said, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I, I, I don't go to meetings, but I find literature really powerful. These, these thoughts and, and feelings really kind of help remind me. It's like going to a meeting, except you're, you're going to a meeting with Virgil. And, uh, and I said, I always thought that could be a book. Because people don't understand addiction. They think it's just some stupid thing that you do because you're stupid. Right, and, and, and addiction and rehab is something that you offer up because you're in trouble and you screwed up and you want to pretend, you know, go through this ritual. It's all, it's all. Uh, when, when I wrote Drunkard, uh, a columnist at the Chicago Tribune actually did a column saying, hey, where's my addiction so I can write my book? You know, boy, that's a sweet thing. And, and I, I wrote him to, I, I had the presence of mind saying, you know, I'd be careful being envious of that because I, I would actually give the addiction to you, you, you know, let you take the book and, and everything, depending I earned from it, everything I've earned from every book I've ever done. And, and you can have it. I mean, it's like saying, boy, that Anne Frank, man, her diary's <laughs> eating up the wires. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, there's, there's a cost there that you're discounting. Okay. So, so anyway, so I was saying to Sarah, I, I think, it, you know, it can not only help, because you don't want to live a dreary life. Beforehand, you think of addiction, especially when you're an addict, as romantic, right? You're there, you right. and Keith Richards, and you're shooting up in a corner. This is this is the thing life is all about, right? And then you give it up, and where are you? It's dreary, cinderblock, church-based bunch of old guys drinking coffee, talking about how fucked up you are. You know, who wants that, right? So I thought, and also, you know, to me, literature kind of make, can make this the path 
started doing it for my kids. I wasn't really, I, you know, what I wanted to do was go drink, but I also wanted to have a family and I wanted to stay married and not like, you know, explain to my kids I had to go live in the, I had decided to go live in the Red Roof Inn and, and be a drunk rather than be their dad. Okay. And uh, so, so I first did it for them and then started to cobble together reasons I was doing it for myself. And I wanted it to be something heroic. You know, I'm a grandiose person. So it's a liability of mine, but I think everyone to some degree, you don't want to do something. You want to do something that's wonderful, right? And if going out, going to parties is wonderful, you don't, you know, you don't have to to sell that, right? You see some ad for Norwegian cruise lines, right? They have this giant martini with a little ship going across, right? They don't have to say, hey, come on the cruise and get snotted. You know, you sign up for the cruise thinking, I'm going to be on that cruise at that line having that martini, right? And so I thought, why not? Why not sort of? Gussie, you know, why not decide that recovery, because these people obviously think it is. And uh, so uh, I'm telling this to Sarah, a short version of this, she goes, and then I basically said, but it would be so much work, I'm not going to do it. I couldn't do it. She goes, I'll do it with you. Uh, I'll be your co-author. And I'd never had a co-author before. In a way, it was, so, you know, I mean, one thing about going through AA is they give you lots of things that are useful one day at a time, right? Don't worry about, you know, oh, what if I go to Italy? Well, you know, the, the, the drinks you're not going to have on a trip to Italy you're never taking, right? So live today. And and, and another thing they, have, they they stress is humility, you know, because you're, when you're an alcoholic or drug addict, you know, it's all about you, right? It's the most selfish thing you can do. I'm going to take the money that my kids need. I'm going to go shoot it up my arm. Right, and so you know, being having a co-author. I don't know if you've ever had a writing partner. I think it, it's a humble experience if you do it right. And I thought I remember getting the contract and thinking, oh right, you know, her name's going to be on the book, and and she's going to get half because I mean, I could have hired her as an employee, I suppose, but but I didn't. A, I didn't have any money to pay her. B, I, I thought that if she was a co-author, she'd be more invested. And she was. She, it was. It was a completely, you know, this is a true partnership book. And it, and it sort of helped keep me, I think, from being too grandiose. You know, my, my writing sometimes can be florid. And she, she kept she had a great line. She said, uh, you're competing with the poetry. And, <laughs> And I, I should probably explain how the book works because it, you know people hear poetry and they all forget that you know. And, and I'm a big Walt Whitman fan, and Walt Whitman was a nurse, a volunteer nurse in the Civil War. So if you read Lisa Grass, which I recommend you do, um, you know he's constantly sort of you know, tending to you. He, he's nursing you. Okay, there's a line of the book that we only quote one part in our book where he says, uh, "Oh despair, here is my neck. By God, you shall not go down. Hang your full weight upon me. I boo you up. I dilate you with a tremendous breath." Okay, so it's it's Walt sticking his big bearded face in yours, like filling your lungs. He's basically French kissing you, you know. And and I really like that. I find that useful. You know, in, in, in Drunkard, I quote Sarah McLaughlin. Uh, she has a wonderful song called Fallen, where she has the line, Better I Should Know. Now, those are four words. They're not really poetic words. They're not, but to me, it was very powerful because when you're in recovery, there's a lot of, oh, why don't I, why do I know this? Why can't I go to Miller's and have a martini now and forget I have this problem? And the answer is, better you should know. You know it's true. And, you know, they, you know they're, they're, there's a whole, you know, the whole Republican Party based on denial of the facts, right? So, you know, you can join those people or you can cope with it. And coping with it can be this really sort of strong thing. And so those words, better I should know, you know, to me are helpful. Um, not everything has to do with recovery. We, we quote the Aeneid, okay? This is great scene in the 
Mermaid, where, where uh, basically their ship is wrecked and they're on the beach, and, the, and Aeneas gives you know, his men are kind of sitting there dispirited. Gives them this speech, basically says, you know, "Gather up your courage, you know, dismiss your grief and fear. A joy it will be someday, perhaps, to remember even this." And so that you know, that's something I say early in the book. It's like, yeah, the book basically walks you. The book begins uh, uh, with a quote from Lord Byron saying, you know, "It's called the, the first chapter is called the best of life." Each chapter begins with a quote, and he basically says, "Drunkenness is the best of life. It's the best thing," which is true. You know, when you, when you, you know, for, for many people who aren't alcoholic, drinking it, it, it's the reward at the end of the day. It's a tremendous thing. And the prospect of living life without it is like the most arid, miserable, depressing thing. So the book starts, you know, in the party, and everything's going great. The opening uh, line after Byron is, is uh, back London's, all, lo- all roads lead to the tavern. So you're all there, and you're having a great time, and then things start to go wrong. And so, you know, the way the, the, the book is structured is you have this opening quote, and you have an essay that I've written, like three or four pages, kind of describing where you're in recovery, and then these quotes. And what I'm very proud of is, I mean, this book does something that I don't think has ever been done before, this I don't know of it, where they're not just assembled thematically, but they're mortised together to like create this little mosaic of a story. So it has a narrative. It walks you through at the beginning of the chapter. You're in the tavern with Jack Lambton and, and, and Samuel Johnson having this great time. And by the end, things have gone off the rail and you're in trouble. And then it leads you to the second chapter. And, you know, you, you get in this trouble, and to get out of it, you have to give up drinking. And you end up in rehab, and, you know, we've got Warren Zevon's Detox Mansion, different things, you know, very, <laughs> and, and you're, you're walked through it. And that's, you know, recovery is a path. It's a process. And, and the book is designed, you know, at first we called it a guide to recovery. And then uh, my editor, the Chicago Press, very savvily said, you know, guide's going to piss people off because it's like this is map. And it's really more of a companion. And I, we both embrace that word. Uh, it's a literary companion to recovery. This is like something, you know, we talked about having a rubberized cover. We thought of like having it like a marine manual, like something you take on your boat you know, or having your glove compartment or something. It's sort of designed to kind of, because it's a really hard thing. The opening sentence of the, of the book is, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. I believe. I mean, I mean, I'm sure it's possible. Some people would just give it up. You know, they're they're, you know, they 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 say, oh, this isn't working. They put the drink down. Maybe they're not addicts in the first place. You know, not, not everyone is an addict. People, you know, don't get addiction. There's a quote from Seymour Hoffman, you know, the, the the late actor. He says, addiction is when you do the one thing you really, really most don't want to be doing, and that's true. You know, it, it's uh, you mentioned in, a, in the, an earlier podcast about being addicted to proposing. And even then, I thought, you know, addiction, it's not something you just like to do or you want to do. It's something you think about continually. You know, I haven't drank in 10 years, and I don't think about it continually, but it's, it's, I think of it as a beast in the basement, okay? And it's been quiet. You don't drink, and the years go by, and it goes quiet. But sometimes I hear it down there. I hear it sort of throwing itself against the door. It's clank, or it's howling away, you know? I mean, if I, I had enough slips before I became sober that I know that if I had a drink now, it's like I would go crazy and go on some binge for a month. Oh, that, that could happen. But what happened is, is then this thing would awaken. And I, I would be sitting in the back of my mind, this voice would be going, hey, have a drink right now. This is, this is a good moment for a drink. It's 10 a.m. You're going out of the fridge to get your grapefruit. Oh, there's beer, you know. And uh, so, you know, to me, that that's the, one of the purposes of the book. Is, you know, lots of writers, you know, Raymond Carver, the, the last chapter is called Gravy. If you're familiar with him, he was not only a short story writer, but he was a really good poet. And uh, and so he wrote this book called Gravy about the last 10 years of his life as, as a sober man. And, and he, he basically 
said this was like this gift that he had, and it's the thing he's most proud of. And it's engraved on his tombstone. And, and, and alcoholics and addicts go there and sort of you know, leave a pebble and a note thanking him. So I should probably take a breath and let you ask a question. <laughs> well, I was just thinking because <clears throat> it it in our cultures, not just uh, what we do professionally, but in our culture in general, drinking is so intertwined like when i worked at second city after shows we celebrated like we won the super bowl <laughs> it's just like we just did another show and we we're like yeah let's go to Al house and yep. get crazy it's what you do and, and when you, it's funny that when you give it up there's a quote that i love this chapter of relapse which is a big thing and when you start to relapse is when you, it's a quote from james joyce where he says i felt like an outcast at life's feast at nod on my own rectitude you know, and that's what you sometimes do. It's like you're at, although, you know, there's nothing like seeing people drink to make you be happy to be sober sometimes. You know, there's, I, I had a buddy who was an English editor. He's the editor of the Toronto Star now. We would still go out. I would go to bars because to me, you can't stay sober because you don't know where the booze is. It just doesn't work. Well, the first thing I did was go back to my old haunts because I couldn't, like, avoid it. I, it's, it's right there. And, and so we're at a bar called Celtic Crossings in Chicago. You may have been there. It's just, real genuine Irish place. And it's like nine o'clock at night and I'm thinking I'm going towards the train and he's there, you know, drinking away with all the lads. I start to I, t I start to edge out the door and he points across the room and he yells, Oh, you're doing that sober thing <laughs> <laughs> And I walked out thinking, you know, there's a lot of drawbacks to, to being sober. There are drawbacks, but but you know when it's time to go home. You know, I, I told him, I said, yeah, the, the, the Irish guys want us to go to some party at Cicero, and I remember yelling over the noise, Michael, you know, don't don't go with these lads. You'll end up face down on the floor in Cicero at 4 o'clock in the morning, which is exactly what happened. Um, uh, or you can go to the train with me. And, you know, he he didn't go to the train with me. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, you are, you do in a sense, but, but you know what? You can cope with that. I, I In 2009, Lou Sussman, the American ambassador to London, invited me to come and speak at the Royal Festival Hall as a representative of the literary renaissance in Chicago. And being an alcoholic and kind of new to sobriety, I thought, no, I can't go. And, and you have to, I think, be a drunk to know why. I, I couldn't go because I couldn't get on a plane and fly eight hours to London and not drink. It just seemed impossible. And thank God I had already gone a couple years earlier for some James Bond junket. And you know, first class, British Airways, champagne, the sugary cashews, the whole bit, drank continually the whole week. I remember standing in some bar in London looking at my old glass of Jack Daniels going, it must be these metric pores. This is doing nothing for me, right? Because you know, your tolerance goes up and up. And I said to him, you're always making deals with yourself, at least I am. I said, you know, Neil, you just were in London a few years ago. You drank away the whole time. Here's a thought. Go. You only have one rule. Don't drink. You can do whatever else you want. And if it's miserable, if you have this lousy time, you come back, tell your wife you have to give, go back to drinking, you have to get divorced. You just can't enjoy life without it. See, give it a try. So I fly, I'm sitting in America, like if it was a movie, it would cut to me, like with my shoulders, kind of like, a, like a, by my ears, reading my book, very focused with like them pouring the big glasses of wine on either side of me, you know, business class, American Airlines. And uh, so I get to, you know, and get to, to there, and Lou Sussman, you know, he's been to London, the American embassies, and Barbara Hutton's old mansion, like on 10 acres in Hyde Park. It's a beautiful day. And he, of course, has a cocktail party with visiting writers, right? And and so the you know the waiter comes by with a big round tray and all these drinks on it. And I say, do you have water? And he's holding the tray so he gestures with his chin at this big goblet with a lemon in it. I take the goblet up and I take a big 
rah, and it's a gin and tonic. And I, I had that drink in three years, and I'm feeling this gin and tonic crackling through my system. And my first thought was, ah, this is God telling me to have fun in London. And the second thought was, but you weren't going to do that. That was the one thing you're not going to do. And I froze, and I waited for him to come back, and I said, oh, wrong drink. And I put, of course, they're British, and the, the, the thing he was pointing at was like this little shot glass with water. It was about three ounces of water. And I picked that up, and I had a blast in London. I gave a speech in Hyde Park on a milk crate, you know, and I, I, I went to a synagogue because I was in the Marble Arch Marriott, and there was this Marble Arch synagogue there, and this Orthodox synagogue, you know, they have the bima in the center, and I'm kind of sitting on the upper rings taking notes, because that's what I do, and, and the guy leans over and says, well, I'm, I'm sorry, we're Orthodox, you can't write Sabbath here, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm an American, I don't know what I'm doing, and, and, and when they heard the American accent, they said, you know, would you like to come and give a blessing, and so the, the blessing they had me give was for the Queen. So here I am, standing on a Saturday morning in the synagogue in London, giving a blessing for the Queen of England. And I thought, fantastic. And I go to this dinner for Granta, for the magazine I was writing for. It's midnight, and there's like 20 people, and they're all drinking hand over fist. And I'm not, and I still had a good time. I mean, I don't, I don't count the sip of gin and tonic. I didn't, didn't mean that. And, and I looked back, and I thought, wow, if I can do that, I can do anything. And that's sort of like the big secret that you learn, is that, yes... The society is set up that you, you know, we're supposed to do this to have fun, but you don't really have to. You can still have fun. I, I went to Japan in March to research a story for a website, and I was there, and I would have thought it again impossible. How can I go with my brother? My brother speaks fluent Japanese, so he went with me, and we're sitting there in some Suntory Jigger bar at night. He's having his Jura scotch, and I, you, know, you can't even get an alcohol drink in Japan. It's like it's an alien thing. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll bring you whatever. We'll drain the bar rag or whatever. You know, we'll hit some water somewhere. <laughs> and 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 but yet I had. I would suggest I probably had a better time than he did, in the sense that, that I, I was sort of sharper and I didn't spend as much. And, and you know, again, it, it's it's like people who have cancer, you know. At some point, you're sort of happy to be alive. You're like, well, yeah, yeah, no, I, I would prefer to, to, you know, have both kidneys, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, I know guys who do drank and are dead, and they're missing out a lot. You know, yeah, I'm missing out something, but I'm not missing out as much as they're missing. You know, and and I did. I mean, doing this book, um, I can't forget to talk about the book. It really was a joyful thing. I mean, I'm hoping someone buys it and is helped by it. But I so enjoyed it, just looking for stuff to put in the book. I'll give you an example. There's a chapter on AA. I originally wasn't going to because the book was sort of like for people who aren't doing AA. But I thought, you know, AA is such a big deal for recovery. You, at some point, you go through it. But even if you don't use it, you have to deal with it. And so I read Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, um, which is 1,100 pages. If you, you know, it's this classic book, and I had never gotten to it. And it turns out to be just brilliant. You know, I thought it was some sort of Thomas Pynchon pastiche, but it turned out to be this brilliant rumination on tennis and AA. And so we, you know, we quote several enormous passages. So, you, know, you don't have to slog through the 1,100 pages, because I did. And these are these sharp, fantastic descriptions, which I think are perfect. They're just perfect, you know. And, and to read that book, to read the different, you know, I, I went through uh, uh, 50 years of Louise Glick's poems. And again, the only, it's funny, you know, the only reason I did was it showed up at the free sale at the paper. And the book is orange and has a Saturn on the cover. Because I'm such a lofty intellectual, I went, ooh, look, 
what a pretty Saturday cool book. It's orange. <laughs> and I took it home, and Louise Glick is like this angry 75-year-old woman who is sort of shaking her fist at life, and, and this is beautiful poem in it, um, where she's, you know, it kind of speaks to... Uh, Speaks to what we're talking about about how 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 life uh, how, how drinking embellishes your uh, your reality and uh, and so she's sort of looking around. Uh, can I read this? As we have to absolutely. Right? This is this is this is towards the end of the book when we're talking about you know gravy where, where you're the life after drinking and this isn't about drinking but to me it is and, and let me read it to you. It's, it's like this. I am awake, I am in the world, I expect no further assurance, no protection, no promise. Solace of the night sky, the hardly moving face of the clock, I am alone. All my riches surround me. I have a bed, a room, I have a bed, a vase of flowers beside it, and a nightlight, a book. I am awake, I am safe, the darkness like a shield, the dreams put off, maybe vanished forever. And the day, the unsatisfying morning that says, I am your future. Here is your cargo of sorrow. Do you reject me? Do you mean to send me away because I am not full in your word? Because you see the black shape already implicit? I will never be banished. I am the light, your personal anguish and humiliation. Do you dare send me away as though you were waiting for something better? There is no better, only for a short space that night sky like a quarantine that sets you apart from your task. Only, softly, fiercely, the stars shining here in the room, the bedroom, saying, I was brave, I resisted, I set myself on fire. That's from a poem called Stars. Now, there's nothing, you know, I don't know why I was brave, I resisted, I set myself on fire spoke to me, but I really I felt like, yeah, I loved booze, it was my life, I loved it, and I gave it up. It was hard, and I did it, and I'm glad of it. And here's a poem that kind of says, way to go. And so that makes me feel better and helps me through my day. Now, you know, again, that, that isn't a spiritual epiphany where God himself comes down and does it, but God was tearing to my aid. And so I found this as a substitute. And it works for me, for now. You know, I mean, no one has ever recovered in addiction. You always say you're recovering because you never know. You know, and that's and that's absolutely true. You know, my big concern, having written two books about recovery, is that when I relapse, someone's going to go, "Ah, look at him!" You know, Mister Mister Drunkard, Mister Out of the Wreck, I rise. <laughs> Not so recovered <laughs> now, are you? And that's how people are. They're, they're completely vindictive. I mean, that, you know, as a newspaper columnist, I write about something uh, controversial, and I get this every single day. You know, I, I did a, a story where uh, in June. My boss said, you know, kind of the media went through this phase where they were buying assault rifles. My boss says, uh, go buy an assault rifle. And I said, uh, you know, that's kind of a trope at this point. That's kind of a cliche. He goes, no, no, we haven't done it, though. Go buy an assault rifle. I said, you know, the woman from the Philadelphia Inquirer did it in seven minutes, and, and that's not going to work here because in Illinois, uh, we have a 24-hour waiting period. So we, we can't beat her seven minutes. And he's like, go you buy an assault rifle. I said, you're wasting $1,000 of the paper's money. I thought newspapers are in trouble, right? <laughs> Go buy an assault rifle. So I walk into the gun store where I've been shooting with them. I have an FYD card. My kids are interested in guns. I took them shooting. You know, I don't believe in the whole saying no thing if you can avoid it. And the guy recognizes me as a newspaper columnist. I'm like, I'm here to buy an assault rifle. I want to you know, buy it. You know, I'm hire an instructor to teach me to shoot it. 
and uh, and then I'm going to sell it back to you. you know, I don't want to leave the premises with it because I don't want it. You know, it's a gun. It's dangerous, right? So uh, during the 24-hour period, they call me up and they say, we're not selling you the gun. And I said, why? You have to. Uh, you know, you go, no, no, we have the right. We have discretion. We cannot sell you a gun if we so choose. I said, well, it's because I'm a journalist, right? It's because I'm writing about this in the paper. You don't want the press. They're like, no, there's other reasons. I said, well, I'm putting the paper around. It's because I'm a journalist. And so they send a letter to my boss saying, we're not selling this gun to Neil Steinberg because he's an alcoholic and a wife beater and a danger to the community. And I think, you know, in my gut, they want, they want you not to write the story. And I thought, the hell, I'm not letting that. So I, I, I gave their reason, then gave what I think the reason is, is that, you know, gun owners like, gun stores like to live in the shadows and they're making so much money and they don't want the, any sort of negative attention. And then this was picked up by Rush Limbaugh, who went on the radio and said, look at this liberal reporter set out to show how easy it was to buy a gun. And the gun store discovered that he was a dangerous alcoholic and wife. And, it became, and so now I'm getting thousands of emails laughing, you know, from Texas and all, you know, it's very funny. All these people who are you know, supposedly good, you know, righteous living Christians, that one person, you know, heard of this broken alcoholic and wife beater who had been denied his Second Amendment rights, that one sympathetic note, that one person, man, it's like that, that sucks. All of a sudden, like, ah, you're in the media, right? I guess that trumps your humanity in another way. But, you know, so, so here I am trying to do a gun story, and, and you know, you know, something is, this thing sticks with you. You can't go back in time and fix it. It's there. It's just, you know, I'm an alcoholic. You know, I, I wish alcoholism was a lie, because then I'd go have a drink, because then it was just some scam that I, I, I cooked up to get in trouble. <laughs> but it got out of trouble. But it's not, you know? And so, you know, you have to somehow cope with reality as it is. And so, to me, the way you cope with it is, if you want, again, uh, A, has a lot going. Another thing they have is honesty, or the rigorous honesty, they call it. And you have, you know, you have to call it what it is. And, and I think society is in a way that it, it's, you know, we kind of tend to ignore our problems. Okay, alcohol is a huge problem, right? Drugs are a huge problem. Fifty percent more people die of, of overdoses than die in car accidents. Like 47,000 people last year. It's incredible. And when you think about how worried we are about terrorism, I don't know why that some someone setting off a bomb is so so much scarier than people, you know, killing themselves with overdoses. You know, if you look at the problem, you know, it's like sharks versus heart attacks, right? We're always worried about sharks every summer, and we don't worry. You know, my theory is is because otherwise it's too scary. If the papers were kind of going into the details of the stuff which really might get you, that's sort of terrifying. But if they're talking about the threat of, you know, African honeybees or something, well, we, we can all kind of get a good scare from that, and yet the <laughs> bees never come for us, right? You never met anyone who's killed by a bee, right? No. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I'm a writer. I've always been a writer. And so, you know, to me, to gather these words together and to use them in this way, I mean, one of the chapters I'm most proud of is the real apps chapter. Because you, know, you see that, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, he was sober for 17 years. What happened? Okay. And so because it's a literary guide to recovery, I kind of, you know, we, we sort of want to frame it in a certain way. And there's a guy, I'd never read him, named Samuel Pepys. Have you heard of him? He's fairly no. obscure. And who Pepys is, he's an English diarist in the 1660s who wrote this, all I knew about him, but he wrote this very frank diary, part of it. Code where he's 
sort of like always having, you know, going sneaking off on London Bridge to have sex with the hookers and things. And so I, I just, you know, part of writing is like the scientific theory, which I think this could be true. I said, I bet he's also drinking a lot. Not only drinking a lot, but he's constantly for swearing drinking and plays, which are two senses twinned in his mind. And because it's a diary, it's always dated. So you could see on September 14, 1662, he's putting his hand over his heart and vowing to God that he's going to give up wine. And then there, six days later, he's with an alderman drinking wine again. You know. So the chapter on relapse is called Upon Breach of My Late Vows. And it starts with this quote. And so do the pewterers to buy a poor's box to put my forfeits in upon breach of my late vows. Samuel Pepys Diary, March 5th, 1662. And so, Pete, you know, some of these people use his characters. And so Pepys is sort of a character through the chapter of relapse, and you see him popping up and, and, and forswearing wine and then popping up later drinking more. And it sort of, it, it almost becomes this sort of head-on-a-board kind of repetition. And, 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 he, and, and I guess not to give it away, but at the very end, he does eventually uh, give up drinking wine, and he, he says it in this beautiful diary entry, and I'll read the, the last entry of the chapter. But however, as soon as I came home, I did pay my crown to the poor's box, according to my vow, and so no harm as to that is done, but only business lost and money lost, and my old habit of pleasure wakened, which I will keep down the more hereafter, for I thank God these pleasures are not sweet to me now in the very enjoying of is that too? Is that too complex? Does that make sense? Uh, you hear what he's saying in that? Because he's basically saying, now that I know what this is, even as I'm enjoying it, it's not not quite as fun anymore. And that's absolutely true. You know, the party is is over at some point. You know, there's a quote from Horace early in the book where he says, "It's not the folly of foolishness that's shame; it's the not knowing when folly time is over." You know, and, and things change. I'm 56. I drank for 30 years, and that wasn't enough, actually. And and that's the thing, the key about addiction is it's not enough. You can't satisfy yourself. If I thought I could have a bottle of wine every day, I would announce myself cured and have that bottle and be happy. But I couldn't. That would just be lunch. That would just be the beginning of lunch, you know. And that's you know, that's sort of a cold realization that never changes. Okay, I've not having a drink for years. I know that nothing's changed, and that's sad. You know, you you wish it weren't true, but then you know, I'm, you know, I, I've got people. You know, I have friends who have cancer, and I'm, I'm sure as, as passionately they wish not to have that cancer. Guess what? You still have. Do you feel your relationship over the years has? I mean, it must have changed with your wife and your. Children from the, the um, well, my, my wife is very proud of me. Um, you know, she's in, in drunkard, she basically says, You can be proud every day, and she is. And, and she's you know, proud that I've written this book. She's, she's uh, you know, I think we're closer. Uh, my children, you know, they're 19 and 20, uh, they haven't read any of my books. They don't, you know, they don't really, we don't talk, you know, we talk about much of anything, so we don't talk about this. This is among the many things we don't talk about. Um, but I don't hide it from them. I'll say, you know, I'm off to my shrink or whatever, um, you know, and, and they, they're college students and they drink and, and I, you know, I sometimes might say, you know, you've, you've got this gene hanging in there somewhere, so don't, you know. Do you think that, 
Do, do you think they hear that, or do they, I know what it's like to be? Did anybody? I mean, <laughs> let's put it this way: uh, 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 my kids in Lambakai, and they gave him a six-pack of Smirnoff ice and a bottle of vodka as his initiation in the spring, and it's in our fridge downstairs. And I didn't say don't drink this. If I was nineteen, it wouldn't have lasted the summer. That's for damn sure. But it's still there. So I take great, you know, people sometimes freaked out that I have booze in the house and uh, you know, I have a friend over and I'm like, hey, Sandy, you want a beer? And he's like, you can, this is some squirming Jackie Gleason doing a spit take kind of thing. And he goes, oh, I don't know, I, I wouldn't be comfortable drinking a beer in front of him. And I'm like, well, Sandy, it's there from the Christmas party. If, if you don't drink it, it's just going to sit there, you know. And, and, and again, because you can't, you can't not drink because you don't know how to get booze. It's not going to work. Do you think um, that, um, because... We don't really have a. Uh, a lot of Americans don't have a sort of a passage into adulthood or whatever, you know, like some cultures do. And here it is: you turn twenty-one, you get shit-faced, and then that's sort of like our passage into adulthood in a way, which seems to set up a unhealthy pattern for many of us. I think if people were more aware that this is sitting there, you know, that this is in its maze, sucking on the bones of the people who went before you, that they might, you know, uh, and part of the reason I drank is my father held seldom ever drank, and, and I, I kind of saw this not as another way not to be him. Um, and and we take it with we did have wine at dinner, so, so I, I don't I don't think that's entirely true. The idea that it, you know the French are alcoholics or whatever, I don't think that's true. Um, I do think that that if if we were had a more nuanced uh, view of, of alcohol as part of your life, that it might, you know, as, as opposed to, you know, if if, if people, if, if someone said, yeah, I did 10 shots on my, you know, 21 shots on my 21st birthday, and, and, and everyone they knew got their eyes, go, what are you, an idiot? You could die doing that, you know? Check yourself in rehab right now. I mean, that, that isn't the reaction. There is sort of this, like, weird pride kind of thing. Um, and I, I think if we had more of a, you know, I mean, 50% of Americans used to smoke, but now it's like 21. And if you ask, how did that improve with education? It was all those ads of someone talking with their artificial larynx, you know, smoking through the hole in their neck. And that kind of sticks with people. And so I think that if people knew more how the wheels go off, uh, drinking and how people ruin their lives with this stuff. And, and you're seeing it now with opioids, opioids, you know, with Oxycontin and that kind of thing. So, you know, suddenly, you know, police departments and all these uh, middle-class urban communities are seeing the 21-year-olds show up dead and we're going, hey, wait a second, we got to fix this right now. And and people are alerted. There's more, much more education getting Narcan and things into, into police cars and, and trying to help people. So I, I do think that that we have this sort of animal house culture where we're all crushing beer cans on our heads. And, you know, the idea that you can live your life. I mean, a third of people don't drink. And a lot of it's for religious reasons or they're Muslims or they're this and that. And they, they, their lives are fine. Okay. And so the idea that this is that this is the joy of life, I mean, it is and can be. But if it's your only joy, you know, if your question is where's the bar wherever you go, then you don't even need to go anywhere, do you? Um, and, and so, you know, I, I do think that, that, and again, it's like the gun culture, right? There, there, there's, I don't want to make it a conspiracy, but lots of people make lots of money off booze and, you know, drink responsibly is a genius, uh, slogan because half of the slogan is drink, right? Responsibly <laughs> just tags on later at the end, right? 
And so here you are, you're doing the good thing, and you're telling people to drink. You know, when you see those, you know, marshmallow-flavored vodka, who the hell are they selling that to? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, You said something really interesting that uh, struck a chord with me. You said, my father rarely, uh, seldom drank, and that was another way uh, to not be him, By uh, I'm assuming you meant by your own drinking. Right. That's. Did you have a sort of a tenuous relationship with your father? It was just, or was that? Yeah, my father was a nuclear physicist and and was very very much interested in his own life and and was very sort of stilted. I remember we didn't go to block parties, and I asked him why, and he said, "Well, these block parties they end up as beer drinking affairs." And my my sister and I laughed at that for years. And maybe he knew better than I. But what I'm saying is 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 that you know we we. I learned a lot from him, and, and what I really learned is that uh, selfish people end up alone, and that you really, even if you aren't, I mean, remember when I said how other people creep me out at mm-hmm. the beginning of our conversation? Um, I, I realized that's bad, and I try to overcome that, and I try to feign interest in them, if not develop a real interest. You know, I see it as a handicap, but I didn't see it as a handicap before. And so I, I really, and, I, and, and part of, again, Becoming sober, you have to kind of look like at see life as it as it clearly is, and what's important. You know, things that are and there's a quote in the book that that I can't think of what it is exactly now, but it basically it it that the importance of externals fall away, impressing other people, status things. You know, we had two of the most low key barbers in the world. I'm sure if I was drinking, we would have been at the Ritz Carlton a klezmer band some sort of big pop latch because I wasn't drinking it was like a, there's no one to impress so I actually let the boys do whatever they wanted and one had it like in a in a mid-range Italian restaurant on Milwaukee Avenue with no dancing and no anything because he didn't want to dance because he was 13 <laughs> you know <laughs> and and so that was good okay and, and I, I think that um you know, like any arduous thing, like joining the army or having a kid. You know, having a kid's the hardest thing in the world, but it's worthwhile once you do it. And I think sobriety falls into that. It's really hard if you need to do it, but there's rewards there. And and you know, and, and again, it, it, it's it's. It, it, I, I see people who are who, who you know, Eric Clapton book says that you know his disease, which he's great glad to have. And I'm not Eric Clapton. I'm not glad to have it. I wish I didn't have it. But wishing you didn't have it doesn't help. And so maybe maybe someday I'll be so zen that I will be glad. Maybe part of me is glad because it's certainly, you know, you don't miss as much. And you and you don't do, you know, when you when I was drinking, you'd go to these different events, you know, charity dinners and things just because you're going to go drink there. It's drinking for free. Who the hell cares? When you're not drinking, someone's like, well, I'm not going to go to the glitter ball and charity auction because I'm not drinking and I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's much more where you're looking, you know, I go hiking a lot now. I like to hike. I've always liked to hike, and now I I hike even more, and I am better at it. And, you know, certainly I lost 35 pounds, which was nice. And uh, so, you know, uh, it's a tremendous, you know, I make a poster. Used to make a poster every year for my blog, and in 2015, the poster was "Life never becomes dull. We do." Okay, and that's you know, life is not dull without drinking. All right, if you think life is dull without drinking, you, you you've got to rethink it. Okay, because you know that shows you've got something. You know, and, and and I think my book helps address, like the Sarah, my book. Right? Again, I didn't go into the full glory of having a co-author. I'll give you an example. It's a chapter on family. 
because family is very important. You know, very few people become sober on their own. They look up and they go, oh, I'm a drunk, I need help. You know, it's your family that does it. And so when I wrote the chapter, I then gave it to Sarah to read, and she said, you know, I like my family. I find my family helpful. And I went, oh, right, there are those people who have these helpful families. It never occurred to me. And I rewrote it to sort of include that possibility. And um, anyhow, so I've, uh, it, it, it's uh, and another thing she did was you know, she would find these different quotes. The A chapter is called uh, "Somewhere to Go," and she found this wonderful quote from *Crime and Punishment*. Uh, Marmalade off this drunk, you know, after a five-day binge, is sitting with straw in his hair, talking to Raskolnikov at a tavern, and he's saying, "Like a man needs somewhere to go." And when she sent me that quote, I went, "That's AA. That's like the place to go." You know, it isn't a bar. And so I built the whole chapter on that. That's great. And the the book, to 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 wrap it up, the book is out now, correct? Yes, yeah, so we can get it on Amazon. It should be arriving. And the official pub date is September 5th. And it's called Out of the Wreck I Ride, A Literary Companion to Recovery, published by the University of Chicago Press. And uh, I'm doing signings in Chicago. The, the launch is at the Poetry Foundation, September 8th. And then I'm going to be in Cleveland September 17th at the Barnes & Noble in Crocker Park, uh, signing, signing books in Cleveland, because I grew up in Cleveland. And for some reason, they care if you come back to sign <laughs> books. Uh, and uh, what is your Twitter handle? I want to share that or anything. Twitter handle is, is Neil Steinberg. I blog at every goddamn day, um, which is probably the best place to find me, because I, I, I post something every single day blog, and it's sort of this very fun, free-form kind of thing that also has my Chicago Sun-Times columns on it. Uh, yeah, well, th- thank you very much, Neil. This has been really great and fascinating, and I really uh, have m- much gratitude towards you for taking out the time to uh, do this with me, because I've been reading your work for a very long time, and uh, you're a goddamn good writer. <laughs> Matt, thank you, thank you, Matt. It really means a lot to me, and... Uh, and I, I enjoy having the time to talk to you about it, you know, more in depth. Usually you have about 30 seconds. And so, you know, <laughs> I think this is something that's really important to people. And uh, and I hope, you know, I hope that people who need help can find help. And I hope if this sort of thing will help them, that, that it does. Uh, I believe it will. Thank you. Oh, yeah, Matt Dwyer. He's a wonderful man, no. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations for Matt Dwyer. Do me a favor and please uh, review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Follow me on Twitter, Matt. Squitter? Follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer at uh, twitter.com. Uh, you, uh, you know, I need to eat. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, send me an email, conversationswithdwyer at gmail.com. Thank you. He's got a witty mind and it goes on stage and it tells his funny jokes oh yeah he tells his funny jokes to all the people and all the people love to listen to him telling all his funny jokes good old Matt Dwyer having good conversations with all kinds of people lots of interesting people want to talk to Matt Dwyer yeah Matt Dwyer Man, he's a writer, man, he's a wonderful man having conversations.
Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.